KYW Original Podcasts. This is KYW In-Depth. I'm Charlotte Reese. The minimum wage has increased over the years, but it's still far from a livable wage for many in the U.S. But what about tipped workers? Many haven't seen a change to their $2 and change hourly rate for decades. Then you add a pandemic to that, where some restaurants aren't even open and others are running on limited capacity. Are workers making enough to survive in 2020? Could we see change in the near future because of what's happening right now? I reached out to Jennifer Lee to ask. My name is Jennifer Lee, and I'm a professor of law at Temple Law School. And I more specifically run a clinic called the Social Justice Lawyering Clinic that involves teaching law students and working with law students on issues facing low-wage workers. Great. And that's exactly why I reached out to you this week. Can we maybe just start off talking about the minimum wage in the United States and specifically Pennsylvania and compared that to tipped workers? Why is there a difference in the first place? Okay, so the federal law requires that people are paid seven twenty-five an hour, but what's happened is that there are a number of exceptions that exist within the federal law that carve out certain professions out of certain protections. And one of those carve-outs is for tipped workers. So if you are a worker who is primarily somebody who customarily in your job receives tips, the employer is not required to pay you seven twenty-five an hour. What they are required to do is they're required to pay you a tipped minimum wage, and then they're required to make the rest up through tips. And so that's just a separate provision that's existed. I mean, there are lots of other exemptions that exist for other kinds of workers. For example, like one well-known exemption is that farm workers are not entitled to overtime. So even though we have a federal law that provides for minimum wage and overtime requirements, we've carved out protections for certain classes of workers. Can you talk about who the majority of tipped workers in America are and why is that so significant when looking at tipped workers' wages and income disparities? Yeah, I mean, so there are some nice studies that have been done by, for example, the Economic Policy Institute on tipped workers. And what we know about tipped workers is that they are predominantly women, they are predominantly people of color. And so it's incredibly problematic that, you know, we're taking a workforce that's (laughs) primarily women and people of color and saying that we're not going to require employers to require to, to pay a base minimum wage rate. And, you know, this really has to do with the economic survival of people who are working. Um, And, you know, fortunately, in some places, there have been state laws that have required that a minimum wage be paid to tip workers, and then they can get tips on top of that. And that has really changed the sort of economics and dynamics for those workers. Right. And even states making changes is 
maybe rare considering how many states have implemented that. When was the last time minimum wage changed significantly in the U.S.? And has it has there ever really been a change for tipped workers? So the last time minimum wage was increased in the United States was in 2009. So <laughs> we're talking over a decade ago and you know it's not so hard for people to do the math and think about cost of living increases since that time and and for that reason i think a lot of not a lot but there have been some jurisdictions some states and localities that have pushed and increased the minimum wage they're recognizing that the federal minimum wage is inadequate and we know that there's been you know a lot of political movement to try and get that increased over the past few years yeah the tip minimum wage has existed forever right <laughs> since the fair labor standards act has existed and you know again there have i think in more recent times been organizing and a movement around trying to get tipped workers out of that exemption and just treat them as any other worker that's entitled to the minimum wage protections. You've mentioned too that, you know, this is a very rare time in history where we have all these different turning points coming because of the coronavirus pandemic and a lot of tipped workers in the service industry specifically right now, you know, restaurants are coming back at only 25 to 50 percent capacity and hotels are empty. I mean, is is this sustainable for people who work there and depend on tips to make a living? I mean, especially in this situation, but in regular times, too. Right. Yeah. I mean, it just it really isn't. And I think that, you know, there's just sort of a whole host of issues that come with the tipped minimum wage and the way in which it operates. Right. So, I mean, there's already the issue of it just not being sufficient and that we should be paying people at a basic level a living wage, right? But on top of that, what happens is we see that there's just straight up exploitation of tipped workers. So, you know, one of the common, I don't want to say common, but I know that there was a broken law studies that was done in three cities by the National Employment Law Project. And they had found that I think 30% of folks who were tipped workers didn't even get the tip minimum wage, right? So the employer just sort of presumed that getting tips was fine and that they didn't even need to pay the base rate as low as it is, right? And we actually have had cases in the clinic like that where we've seen people who have worked in server positions and not gotten the tipped minimum wage. And then there are issues, too, involving tip pooling. So I don't know if you're familiar with these issues, but there are a lot of rules about this at the federal level. But, you know, what happens is that employers might actually pool tips together. And sometimes that's permissible, but sometimes that's not permissible. And it's particularly not permissible when employers and managers dip into those tip pools, right? So that's another common problem we see. So just, you know, giving you an idea of the the sort of fluidity of this problem is that some of it's about sort of the tipped industry and some of it's about just simply not having an equivalent base wage rate to any other worker right, that works in the U.S. In recent years, there's been this really big push for a $15 minimum wage. 
Are tip workers included in that talk? I mean, right, do, do they want to be included in that talk? I think absolutely. I mean, I don't want to speak for them and I don't want to speak for the movement, right? So I think you'd have to talk to somebody who's, who's directly involved. But I think that, yeah, I mean, there's an overall ask for it to be raised to 15. But then I think on top of that, there are some issues about these exemptions, right? Which, you know, often are disproportionately, like we said, impacting women, people of color. That's where these exemptions are. And so I can't imagine that, you know, folks who are fighting for an equal wage as tipped workers aren't also looking for that to be increased as well to a living wage. So, um, you know, the fight for 15 platform. Mm -hmm. And what are, what are the arguments for and against raising the minimum wage? And especially for that being across, right, all platforms, all employment platforms? Well, I mean, I think the main argument is, uh, that's against sort of raising the minimum wage is that I think from a business perspective, and I, you know, I also don't want to speak on behalf of businesses, but that that it becomes really difficult to operate a business and make profits if you have to pay your workers more. So the obvious reason, I mean, there are many, many reasons, I think, why to increase the minimum wage, but I just want to sort of mention two. So one is just, it really is about having a living wage. And I think there's a really great website that's been put out by MIT that shows sort of the cost of living for an individual, for a person with one kid, for a person with two kids, and it basically does the calculations backwards. So instead of sort of showing what your income is, what it does is it says, okay, how much does it cost to live in this city? How much does an apartment cost to rent? What does a food budget look like? What is, you know, transportation cost? And they add up the costs and then they go backwards and they say, okay, well, what should the hourly wage be for somebody? And I'd have to look it up, and I can while we're talking, but there's a computation for, you can do this for Philadelphia, you can do it for any city in the United States, right? But it's it's clearly way above the 725 minimum we have. And so there's just this absolute sort of stark fact of reality, which is you cannot survive on 725 an hour. I mean, that's one thing if you're a teenager and you're working a job on the side and you live at home with your parents, right? But it's another thing if you're a grown-up adult and you have children and you work full-time, you cannot make ends meet, right? So I think that that's the most compelling reason, right? These are people who are working and they're still unable to pay for basic necessities. And I think the other is just sort of the recognition of, well, then what happens to those folks, right, who are unable to make ends meet, right? Like how... You know, we talk a lot in our society about safety nets and how we don't want to provide for safety nets public benefits for folks because they're not working. But, you know, in the end, what we're doing is the government is in some ways subsidizing private employers to pay people low wages, right? And so we should think about what our sort of priorities are and you know, how to make it so that people can, A, survive <laughs> and live on the wages that they get and the hard work that they do. But also, you know, I mean, I think COVID-19 has also really revealed a lot about, you know, the huge gaps in our safety net, right, that exist. And, you know, maybe we could start thinking differently about our safety net if we actually paid people living wages. 
Right, definitely. I mean, this is such a unique time, the pandemic and economic turmoil, but then there's been this civil unrest across the even the world. Just this week in Philly, One Fair Wage, huge organization held a protest alongside the Black Lives Matter protesters. Do you think that maybe this could be the time that we actually see change for tipped workers and workers across the board? That's a really good question. I don't know. I think that it is a time where we are reflecting. I mean, I think one thing that the Black Lives Matter movement has done and the, and the sort of focus on anti-racism has done is that we are starting to at least talk about things more in terms of systemic and institutional inequality, right? And I feel like that very much lends itself to a discussion about, okay, how do laws contribute to that systematic inequity versus, you know, prior conversations that were very much focused on sort of personal responsibility, right? And personal instances of racism, right? So I think, and I'm not saying that there isn't sort of personal acts of racism that occur in society, but I think what's really powerful is sort of taking a look at, you know, how as a society have we constructed things such that there's systematic racism, right? So I think that the way in which the federal minimum wage law operates and the kinds of exclusions it has is a perfect example of sort of institutional and systemic racism, right? And so in that sense, I do think that the protests have helped to open people's eyes to that. Whether it's going to change, I don't know. I mean, I think that's like a tea leaves, read the tea leaves question. And I think that has a lot to do with politics, which, you know, I don't know that I'm the best versed to, you know, come to a conclusion on because there are really powerful political interests that are lobbying against an increase for the federal minimum wage, right? And on the side of the tipped workers, and you've got workers organizing, and that's really fantastic. But against that, you've got really powerful industries, including the national restaurant industry and the hotel industry and other industries that could be impacted who have tipped workers. And so I think that's always a complicated mix of people to understand what the outcome is going to be. How do you think change will actually have to happen? You mentioned, right, the different forces, but what what actually gets um, changes to minimum wage to actually go through? I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, if I knew the answer, I think, you know, we maybe would, you know, then then groups would understand, you know, how to, I mean, I, I think it's all about organizing, right? So it's all, and, and that's where I think, again, you know, Black Lives Matters movement, you know, is something to really take a look at, right? Because it's, it's going to be about collective action, about people saying, we're not going to put up with this anymore. And I think that's, you know, you, you talked about the protests this week, and I think that it's things like that that are going to help move the needle and maybe get people heard. And so I think, again, it's really about people organizing and being out on the street. Yeah, definitely. And it, it, it's too just interesting that the last time was 2009, which, you know, another economic recession in the country. And maybe this could be the next change considering everything that's happening in America. 
Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, I think there's a lot of sort of politics that's up in the air for the election, but maybe there's a possibility. And, you know, and like I said, states and localities are moving, but the problem in Pennsylvania is, for example, Philadelphia cannot increase the minimum wage because of the state law. So the state law blocks the city from being able to do that. So while I think that Philadelphia City Council would be willing to consider something like that, it can't be done. That's very interesting because Pennsylvania is a very weird state where we have it's that's that's mind-blowing to think yeah and it's because there's specific language in the state law it's called preemption that's the legal term but essentially what it says is it says that no locality can you know increase the wage and so there's explicit language in the state law that prevents it from happening that makes sense well thank you so much jen for joining the podcast and talking with me about this Sure, of course. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Charlotte Reese, and we'll have another episode out soon.